Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. I'm a good friends. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for stopping by and giving us a listen. Since we just so happened to be on the subject of mountain men the last time we were together, I figured this week we may as well keep going down that rabbit hole because I just happened to find another story that's even more shocking than the last one was. The toughness of these mountain men can only be outweighed by their meanness in most cases, and that is until you stir in a full cup of wackadoodle, then you have a real piece of work. Like we said last week, or last time we were together, most of them went to the mountains because they were in the middle of something that would have resulted them spending the rest of their days in a cage or maybe dancing at the end of a rope. This one took a whole thing up a notch or two. So come on in, set a spell, and let me tell you about this nutball of a mountain man. Levi Boone Helm was born on January 28, 1828 in Lincoln County, Kentucky. And I'll just go ahead and say it now. Boone, as he was known, Boone Helm, was a full-blown barking moon bat in full bloom before God and everybody. Man didn't have one scintilla of morality and didn't give a single little squirrel turd about anybody else's life, including his own. Now, now Boone was brought up in what was considered a pretty well-to-do, hard-working, and honest family. He had 12 siblings. When he was a little feller, he and his family moved out to Missouri, which in those days was right on the western frontier. So that was probably the last thing he needed because it seemed like Boone took right to all the rowdiness and public mayhem that were just normal life in that area. He grew up and turned into a violent alcoholic that would start a fight about every reason that somebody could even think up to start one over. After he'd started fights with and beat up most of the local folks just for the fun of it, Boone became interested in the feats of strength then. In his own mind, he was the strongest man alive, never manned the insanity that came with it. But he would show off his strength by throwing his bowie knife into the ground and riding past on the horse at full speed and grab it up without falling off the horse or losing a finger in the process. Of course, that wasn't enough. He had to always outdo everybody at everything, including himself. One time, the sheriff tried to arrest him for fighting and destroying about everybody's property in town while he was on his horse. And Boone, well, being Boone and drunk at the time, 
like he was most of the time, decided that he'd better just find out what he was wanted for. So he rode his horse right into the courthouse, right up the steps and into the courtroom. Yes, he rode his horse right into the court. That's where he started harassing the judge, right from his saddle. The judge was busy with other matters, so Boone started insulting him while asking what the hell he sent the sheriff to arrest him for. Of course, that whole matter was swept under the carpet by his still well-to-do family, which didn't do anything but make it uh, that much worse. At the ripe old age of 20, Boone married a 17-year-old girl named Lucinda Brown, and they had a daughter. It didn't take his life wife long to get tired of his constant state of being mad and criminal ways. He hit the door every day, kicking and slapping, and spent all their money on liquor, which made it even worse. He wouldn't stop until it was an all-out public disturbance that had to be broke up by the law. Then he'd ride his horse into the house, finally fall off the horse right into bed and sleep it all off. Once again, his family would smooth it all over for him. Lucinda family had it with her being beat senseless and within an inch of her life about every other day or so. So she finally filed for divorce and Boone's own father paid the court cost. By that time, Boone had grown into a tall, muscular man that had already committed several murders and the local folks didn't even know about because that too got swept under the rug. The divorce, along with all the damage they paid for, as well as killings that they covered up, finally bankrupted his family. In 1848 was when the California gold rush got fired up and people started moving further west. So now that he had ruined his family, who should have cut him off a long time ago, worn out his welcome with every single human being for miles around and lost his wife and daughter to boot, Boone decided to join everybody else because he figured, you know, he had about as good a chance as anybody else finding some gold out in California and the local folk couldn't wait to see him leave. Boone had a cousin. His name was Littleberry Shute. He asked Littleberry to go to California with him, and Littleberry said that, uh, well, you know, I'll go. But while Boone went back to pack everything up and uh, for the trip, Littleberry uh, started thinking about watching Boone wax full whack-a-doodle for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for his entire life, leaving nothing but death and destruction in his wake. He thought that there would probably be a real good chance that he'd never make it to California, and if by some miracle he did, he dang sure wasn't about to make it back. So when Boone came back to meet him, they, so they could, you know, pack up and leave, he told Boone that he thought that he'd just go ahead and stay. Well, nothing to do Boone but get madder in a wet hornet. He jumped off his horse and stabbed little Barry right in the chest and killed him instantly. Boone, after he killed Littleberry, which he considered, I guess, uh, his good deed for the day, then set off for California like he'd just finished breakfast. Since he was on his own, he planned on surviving off the land along the way by, you know, eating rabbit and squirrel or maybe dove and quail if he could catch some. Knowing him, he was probably eating them raw, feathers and all, well, maybe fur and all, who knows. Didn't take long for Littleberry's relatives to find him, and it didn't take them long to figure out who did it either. They put together a posse and went looking for Boone Helm. How Boone managed to survive them finding him, I couldn't tell you. I guess they must have been some fine, upstanding citizens. Most of the time back then, when they went 
out looking for somebody. They just killed whoever it was they was looking for and be done with it. They dragged the nutball back and put him in jail, where he apparently, uh, his behavior was so outrageous and disturbing that they had to move him to a mental asylum for the safety of the other prisoners once he defecated on one of them's head while he was asleep. Now, once they locked him in the asylum, Boone either faked having a mental breakdown or actually went full-blown moon bat and just sat there staring at the wall without eating or drinking anything, despite all the prodding by the doctors. Finally, the guards made the mistake of taking pity on him. They thought that maybe he'd need all he needed was maybe to get outside and get some fresh air, so they would escort him on walks through some of the woods outside the compound. There were you know, several armed guards with him, of course, and they was all convinced that it was doing him some good. It wasn't long before he was going on his walks every day. That's when he turned one of the walks into a run and managed to escape three armed guards by flat out running all of them. After he got away, they pretty much thanked God that he was gone and decided not to go after him and bring him back because if he was gone, he couldn't cause any more trouble. Of course, that post the shoot family uh pissed the shoot family off and they <laughs> couldn't do anything about it because they had no idea where in the countryside the man might be hiding at so they didn't go, didn't do anything to sit and maybe wait and see if they could catch a glimpse of him somewhere going passing through and but he stole his horse back from in pound and headed for california again and nobody knows how many people boone killed on his way to california Historians only know that he did. About every place he passed through once he got closer to California called him by his new nickname, the Kentucky Cannibal, because he was known to eat the poor folks that he killed. Nobody knows if he consumed all of them or exactly how much, but he would get in the faces of anybody he could pin down and tell them that he killed and ate them because cling to the skeleton because that's just the way he did business. Murder wasn't that uncommon in the West, and it was pretty easy to get away with back when then, and so nobody really knows who killed how many of who, but it's thought that Boone killed his fair share and probably somebody else's too. After he hit California and started working in the mines, he found folks that thought along the same lines as he did. I reckon he led them down the wrong path because he didn't slow down one bit. He still went out and about starting fights and even ended up killing some of his co-workers. It wasn't long before he had to leave California along with his, six of his friends in order to keep, do, keep from doing the hip dance at the end of a rope. That's when they headed into the mountains of Oregon and Idaho, leaving a string of murders along the way. I wouldn't think they'd be hard to track. I mean, they leave dead pe people everywhere they go. But by 1853, Boone and his like-minded nutball friends were in Oregon, where they rode around killing people for sport. They were lucky enough not to be killed themselves, since most people living there were crack shots and rarely missed themselves, especially the ones they preyed on. They picked the ones mining and panning for the pre any precious metal they could find, mainly gold. They'd kill them and take their haul. But the problem was they were killing folks who were just getting started and there just wasn't that much of a haul to take. So when that failed, and because they left dead people all over the mountains, you might say that the relations with the local folks went south, so they took off for Idaho. It's important to understand something about now. This was before the Civil War. 
but Boone Helm was of Southern aristocrat blood, and he wasn't the only one who had a bunch of renegades running around the country terrorizing everybody who might just might not think like he did. He was the only one at the time to take it as far along the U.S. tour as he did, though. This type of thing was what finally led to the Civil War itself. Aristocratic families like Boone's had heavy influence in the political scene of the day, and that would be the reason they were able to cover up most of what he'd done back in Missouri. Folks, you still ain't heard nothing. Boone's just getting wound up. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Anyway, the Wackadoodle gang were going to try to make their way to Fort Hall and then on to Salt Lake City, Utah. But they couldn't outrun winter and they were still in the mountains. Anybody who's been in the mountains in winter will tell you that the word cold can't even begin to cover it. All six of them were stuck on horseback and had very few supplies. They were forced to move very slow through the rough snow-covered mountains. It wasn't long before the supplies ran out. So they killed and ate their horses one at a time. Then to top that off, they were attacked by Native Americans who ran them even further back in the mountains, forcing them to blaze a new trail out, which took even more time in the mountains with nothing to eat. As Boone told it, he had to start killing men and eating them. After all, it wasn't the first time he'd ate human, but uh, Boone kept going until he, he and his friend named Burton were the only two men left. By the time Boone and Burton finished off the last of their gang, they were almost to Fort Hall and almost through the winter. It was that time that Burton lost his strength and couldn't walk any further, so Boone left him barely standing in the snow and finally made it to Fort Hall. He made it all right, and uh, well, only to find out it had been abandoned. There wasn't as much as a crumb of food left, so he went back to find Burton, which might not have been too good for Burton. And as he told it, though, he heard a shot ring out himself and heard Burton shoot himself right before he could get to him and stop him. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened, don't you? The only thing that Boone could figure to do was to, well, start slicing his friend up and ate him right down to the skeleton. He did save part of one of his legs later. He wrapped it up in an old shirt and threw it over his shoulder before continuing on his way. By the that point, he had no idea where he was or where he was even going. He was just walking. He finally wandered into a Native American settlement where he was found by a man named John W. Powell, who took him in to, you know, to, to the settlements around Salt Lake City, which is where he was heading anyway. So Mr. Powell was good enough to feed and clothe the monster, who never uttered a single word of thanks. Mr. Powell later found out that Boone had brought with him $1,400 all the way through the mountain winter ordeal. That's the, the equivalent of about 52000 in today's money. That's right, right, smart bit of money too, but Boone didn't feel the need to compensate the man who'd saved his life with a single red cent of it. Now the towns around Salt Lake were mostly Mormon. I reckon that didn't matter a whole lot to Boone. He just went about business as usual by spending his money on wine, women, and song until it was about gone. Not a day went by that he didn't go into his obligatory daily fights, almost killing whoever it was and, and fighting with, and uh, maybe even killing the people watching it half the time. Somehow he wound up becoming a Danite. 
a Danite. Now, it's a member of the secret Mormon group that advanced their beliefs through violence against anybody they deemed their enemy if necessary. Now, I guess they figured if he was going to kill, he may as well point him in the right direction to those they thought needed killing. Of course, that was right up his alley, and I reckon he figured that that, that gave him a license to really get, uh, you know, down with it and stick his ass out the window with the killing. And he not only did that, but being Boone him, he ran it through the wall too. He killed and wreaked havoc everywhere he went. Once the Mormons used him to kill up all the people they considered enemies, he was no longer welcome. What do you know about that? The main two reasons for it were Boone was a one-man hurricane wherever he went and everybody was afraid of him. Well, that's pretty much what happens when you make a deal with the devil, ain't it? And not only that, but being a Kentucky cannibal and all, he ended up cooking and eating his victims, which uh, shocked everybody. So rather than getting mad about it, this time Boone just picked up his bags and headed out for California again. Boone Helm never gave one squillimeter of any kind of compassion for his victims or even gratitude toward anybody who helped him or mostly tried to help him. For example, when he got to California, he was taken in by a man who wanted to help him escape justice. Poor man fed and clothed Boone, who got free room and board on top of that, and Boone thanked the man by killing him for nothing more than thinking it would be fun. Boone took off from there and traveled through San Francisco and into Oregon. He managed to do that without leaving a trail of dead men along the way of this time, but once in Oregon, he went back to robbing and killing people. He killed at least five people while in Florence, Oregon. One of them was a man named Dutch Fred. Now, he met with the man in a saloon and pointed his gun at him, missed the first shot, and as the man stood face to face with him, Boone aimed more carefully and killed the man with the next shot. Dutch Fred had a local reputation as a fighter, but had never done anything whatsoever to make Boone mad. It was later thought that Boone probably killed him for somebody else's hired hitman, or as a hired hitman for somebody else. After that, Boone was forced to leave Florence, and, and in 1862, during the height of the Civil War, he traveled further north into British Columbia, which at the time was still ruled by the British. Again, he hasn't thought it through very well because there he was in the mountains during winter. So he was right in the middle of another starving march through the mountains with little supplies. Of course, he just happened to leave a companion or have a companion with him who he killed and ate before making it to British Columbia. Now, once he got there, he went about business as usual, you know, the business as usual being Boone Helm and killed several more of the town's folk for money or just because he was drunk and got into a fight with them. He was chased out of town by the British who was, and was arrested when he passed through Portland, Oregon for, well, one little thing he forgot about, I guess, he killed Dutch Fred, so they dragged him back to Florence and put him on trial. At this point, Boone decided to seek help of one of his 12 siblings, who he called Old Tex. His brother spent a lot of money bribing all the witnesses, and with it being the Wild West and all, there were so many murders committed in Florence after Boone ran out and ran for it and went to British Columbia that uh, most of the town folks had already lost interest in the whole thing. And as a result, 
Boone was set free because nobody saw nothing. And he went back to Texas with his brother. I wonder if old Tex ever knew how lucky he was that he wasn't killed Nate. But of course, nothing do Boone but cause trouble there too. He soon left and headed back to on a murder tear through the all of the states that he just ran out of. He even joined the Henry Plummer gang who ambushed traveling wagons and robbing and killing every, anybody that they come across. Of course, that was a good fit for Boone. Finally, a bunch of fed-up local folks caught Boone and some of his gang while they were in Montana. It was 1864, and this time he was tried along with some of his gang members. Being that Boone was had squirreled away so much and so many times, and the trial was kept quiet, and the prisoners were the only allowed communications with their lawyer, so he wasn't going to squirrel out of this one. Of course, Boone was quite mad that he had been arrested by who he considered common folks who were beneath him and not by the local sheriff. He could have fought off what he knew was law enforcement, he said, but the men who approached him were not sheriffs but regular people and had captured him by sneaking up on him, of all things. Boone took the stand in his own defense because that's just the way old Boone was. When he was sworn in, he actually kissed the Bible, then proceeded to lie through his teeth. He admitted that he kept an eye out for sheriffs, but claimed that he'd never killed anybody in his life. Nobody in the whole courtroom who was fooled, since they pretty well knew about all of his depravity, because most of them had witnessed it firsthand. There was an unending air pipe of witnesses that testified against him. Boone, of course, didn't do it, he said, and it was actually three-fingered Jack Gallagher who did it all. And Boone sat there on the witness stand and described in great detail all the murders and robbings done by everybody else in the gang but him. Of course, the four other gang members were on trial with him, and they promised that if they ever got out of this alive, they were going to kill him. Needless to say, it did take the jury long, and after being found guilty, all three of the men were sentenced to be hanged by the neck until they were dead. After all that, Boone Helm must have had a come-to-Jesus moment because he confessed all he had done to the horror of the sheriff. On January 14, 1864, all five criminals were dragged out to the gallows to be executed in front of a crowd of about 6,000 rowdy people who couldn't wait to get rid of them. Before long, before being dragged out to the gallows, Boone said, I have looked to death in all forms, and I'm not afraid to die. Can I have a glass of whiskey for my last meal? He told all the other gang members to calm down and stop looking so worried about dying. When it was Jack Gallagher's, you know, three-fingered Jack Gallagher's turn to be hanged, Boone asked the man if he could have his jacket after he was dead because he wouldn't be needing it anymore, boy. And Jack said, hell, you won't need it either, boy. While Jack struggled at the end of the rope and his face turned purple, Boone yelled, kick away, old fella. After Jack was dead, Boone said, my turn. I'll be in hell with you in just a minute. The moon bat practically dragged the guards up the gala stairs to get to the rope. They slipped the rope over his head and his last words were, every man for his own principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. Let her rip. And of course, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Then before anybody could think, he leaped off the front of the platform and snapped his own neck before his death warrant could even be read to him. 
So I reckon that was his final murder. Folks, I don't know. It's all true, whether you believe it or not. I've never seen anything like it. But that's what we keep saying every week when we find something else new. I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that really needed telling. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us to get notified of new episodes on whatever media you're listening. Come join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk about everything Appalachian or anything else you want to talk about. And I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. Um, Hopefully the hours will be letting up a little bit at work. But uh, I'll see you then.